I think it's on. Yeah. I think we should give uh, Christina a real clap. That was a tour de force. <laughs> All right. Good morning. I do want to uh, invite you to sign up for Pillars as soon as you can because that will help all of us to be able to assign groups and things like that, yeah? Um, this, this, uh, this time when we do Pillars, we'll be focusing on the land as the context, you know, where God has led us to, where God has placed us in our family, our workplace, our, uh, the, the, the environment that God has put us with a mission in. And uh, we will talk especially about the practical aspects of um, the Spirit of God working and empowering us, following, leading the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, operating in the land, as well as the Word of the Lord upon us. Yeah, I am very excited about it, and I would really hope that you can come for it. If possible, if possible, come in, in person. There will be food of all kinds. Meatballs, spaghetti, and meatballs and spaghetti. But there will also be spiritual food as well. <laughs> so I want to invite you to just sign up for it as, as far as possible. And um, we will talk a little bit more about it uh, while we are having the sermon. Uh, let's pray and we ask God to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that we are a church that is on the way. And that we have not even begun to really scratch the surface of what riches you have for us. We thank you that in the meantime, while we are on the way, you have a feast before us, even in the presence of our enemies. So we thank you, Lord, for your presence, for your power, that you want to do something real, something actual today. And so we ask you, Lord, for something more than just the exposition of words. We ask you for your presence to administer to us the power of God. That that which we hear will be perceived to be from you. And not only that, Lord, that not only will, you, will we hear it, but you will be, the thing that you want for us will be deposited in us today. So we welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Today I'd like to continue. Last week we spoke about the topic of mean time. And we spoke about the fact that mean time is the period in between the Lord's promises, our hopes, and God's fulfillment of His promises to us, right? In real and concrete and, uh, and uh, actual uh, fulfillment. And in the meantime, we have something in the middle called meantime. <laughs> the meantime is in between when we are not there yet. Yeah? And sometimes in meantime, it can feel mean. And we think of mean as small, uh, ins inconspicuous, uh, not um, significant, insignificant. We think of mean as small in that, in that sense. We can sometimes feel that right now, we have this big... Uh, discrepancy between the wonderful and great things that God has for us and the meanness of our experience. Yes? The meanness of our experience. Wallace Stevens says, the paltriness, paltriness, oh, the meanness of my life. You know? 
And there's a way in which we as Christians have to ask the questions, are we being deluded by promises, by things in the Bible, by rah-rahs, by inspirational talk? Or is there something real in mean time, the diminutive time, the time in which in between we may not seem to see the fullness of God's um, promises for us? Mean time is, of course, time when people are mean to us as well. <laughs> Don't you find mean time? Oh, my mean time. Mean people. But mean time really is a, a crucial time. And we spoke about that from Psalm 84. And we spoke about how in mean time, what God does is what we saw him do in Joseph's life, where at the end of all his trials, his imprisonment, his slavery, his stripping of that special coat that he had, the special identity that he had, he comes before Pharaoh, and the culmination of all the things that happen in meantime is brought before him when Pharaoh says to him, I heard it said of you that you can interpret dreams. And, and Joseph is brought up to do something that oh, nobody else can do, but it's something that God has prepared him to do in meantime. And we spoke about the fact that what God wants to do is to give us a, I have heard it said of you. How many of you have that? Have you had people say, I've heard it said of you that you know God, you hear from God, and miracles happen through your life. That's what God has for us. And he prepares that for us and, cre and creates it for us in meantime. I would put it to you that meantime is very crucial. That at the end of meantime, we will be brought up and called up before our, our special moment, what Churchill calls that moment where it could be our, 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 our finest hour, that which God has been, been doing in our lives. And we all have these several paths in which these things are going to happen, not just once, but multitudinous times. And in each, in each circumstance that we have, we can call, we can feel that we are often in meantime, in between time, in the in-between time, the not yet. And God's promises are now, but they're also not yet. And we experience a combination of this. This, this seems to be a, a discrepancy between what we hope for and what God seems to have said, spoken to us and what we are experiencing now, meantime. And it's in this place where when, when we experience this, um, it feels like there is a deep preparation that God is actually doing in us. And if we can understand the alphabet of that, yeah, the dynamics of that, what the Holy Spirit is doing, we will find in meantime pools of water, outpourings of the Spirit, outpourings of God's power and His presence that are so powerful that it will change the whole feel of this time. Yes? So we saw that what God is preparing in Joseph in the land, far away from his homeland, far away from what's comfortable and what's, uh, what's, uh, what's familiar with him, God was doing something, preparing in him, uh, I have heard it said of you. You have one of those? You've got to have one of those. Because I've, uh, uh, I have heard it said of you is what's going to take you through the portal into God's destiny for us. But the, more, the, th the thing about it is that when we are in this critical period where God is preparing a, I have heard it said of you, we often want to give up. Because it doesn't look good. True? So I'd like to look at another part of Scripture 
that sort of takes this a little bit further, at least for us, and it's in Psalm 63. If you can turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, and I'll just read the whole psalm. It's not that long. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. If you have the ESV, I like the ESV's translation. It's called, early will I seek you, or something like that. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land. Perhaps this in-between time, this meantime, feels like this, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied. Imagine that in the dry and weary land, our soul can be satisfied on every level. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises and joyful lips. And with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you and your your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. This is a psalm of David, the king. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. The mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Let's have a look at this. Because... I'm immediately struck by the first verse, and we'll kind of expound, we'll do an expository kind of a, a Bible study on this today, okay? Oh, my, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly or early, I will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I'm struck by that, the dry and weary land. Are you in a dry and weary land? Sometimes we're in these places where God seems so far away where things seem so dry. Spiritually, it seems seem dry. I just don't feel like the presence of God. I don't feel that God is around with me. And there are times in which, in meantime, God actually brings us through these, what seem to be a dry and weary land. I'm struck by this because of the fact that when you're in a dry and weary land, you don't have water. You don't have the normal things that sustain you, the things that you've depended upon to feel comfortable, to feel alive, to feel you're in a good place. In fact, it feels like in a terrible place, a dry and weary land, a place of drought, where the normal things that you have depended upon to feel good are not even there. Yeah? We do find spots. spots. Sometimes we find this even when we're doing God's work, yeah? even though, even though we're, we're ministering. I remember that um, you know, this is, BCF is the seventh church that I'm pastoring. And every, in every one of these churches, whenever I enter into this place, whether church planting or taking over a church, I found that the early part of it, several months, there is a dry period, of, a period of drought. It's almost as if you feel oppressed by the enemy. You only feel negative thoughts. And the, your environment, your mental environment is just despair, despair, depression. And 
I don't know how many times I've experienced this, but in almost every time that I've been involved in getting into a church, I've experienced something that wants, wants to make me feel I'm far, far away from God or far, far away from my home. I feel that there's times in which we will experience where we're uh, times in which we feel we're out of place, we're just out of sync. It's not, it's not running at full cylinders. It doesn't feel familiar. It doesn't feel uh, comfortable. There's no community. There's not much camaraderie. You don't feel close to the people that are around you. You feel distant. You feel alienated. You feel you're burdened by problems, and these problems don't seem to have any kind of response from God. There is, that's what we sometimes call meantime. Meantime can be pretty brutal. And I want to speak to those of you who are experiencing these times where there's, it seems as if there's nothing really familiar, nor, or nothing really hopeful. As far as your feelings and concerns your, are concerned, your, your emotions, your thoughts that, are, that inhabit your mind, it feels very tenuous sometimes. Desolate. Drought. Dry. A dry and weary land. And it is in this place that uh, we begin to experience something more. We feel dead. We don't want to be here. Okay, I don't have to talk about it anymore, right? I've, enough, I've depressed you enough. I hope there are none of you who feel, I was feeling quite good until now. <laughs> but anyway, when, when we're away, away from home, God is actually going to be doing something that changes us, not just by changing circumstances, but, the cha but changes the way in which we get happiness the way we feel happy, the way in which we feel comfortable, there is something about that that I experienced when I planted my, one of my, my first churches. I was living in community with a, a group of people in a house, and there were about you know, 16 people in the house, and there are six of us in the, in, in the, in the men's room where we all slept together. And... Uh, we had great fellowship. Every day we had great fellowship. We are bonded together in an amazing way. I remember the fellowship that had happened. And sometimes I felt that's the best thing about church. Not God, but the guys, right? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced fellowship with men or women or friends? It doesn't matter. It's not gender specific in which you've had that. And then I remember I was thrust out into this place where totally in the boonies, the people that I was actually with were people I could not relate to. And they could not relate to me either. Um, we spoke a different language completely. And it was in this place that I felt completely out of, uh, out of sorts. I felt if, if there was at least, at least one thing I could be do, doing in this job that played to my strengths, at least I will feel familiar. I feel I can do something. I'm, I'm not completely useless. But I felt completely useless. People would look at me every time I preached. People look at me funny. And they would say, I don't understand what you're talking about. And that, was, that felt dry. When I spent time with God, I felt as if God was so far, a million miles away. And I... And I thought it was a, the whole thing was a big mistake. And there are some of us who are in this place and you are feeling 
you're not in the right place. You're not in the right thing that you should be doing. And sometimes that can be something that can actually discourage you. May I suggest to you that it's worth taking a moment to step back from that and open up to the fact that perhaps you are exactly in the right place because God's wanting to do this. Yeah? God is actually going to do something in terms of friendships. He's going to do something in terms of community. He's going to do something in terms of experiencing real fellowship. But if you give up on it, you will not experience it. You will experience friendship on a totally different plane. Most people experience friendship on the level of the flesh because people are like them. They get married to the people who are a fit, so they, so to speak. Have you heard the phrase, it's not a fit? The problem is with marriage, it's never a fit. If you marry someone who's a fit, what you're saying is this, I have to marry someone who, doesn't, who does not need to change. And I don't need to change. I'm going to marry somebody who will accept me as I am completely. And will say that you don't need to change. You are perfect. And we sometimes live in a society that has no room for improvement because of the fact that we assume that the right fit is a person who's perfect. Perfect for you or whatever, right circumstance. In fact, we think that the right job or the right land is one in which it's perfect for you. Because in Christianity, we always talk about a God's will being perfect for you. Yes, it's perfect for you, but you're imperfect. And because you are imperfect, that land will change you. But that, and that's why it's perfect for you. <laughs> now, not every place is perfect. <laughs> not every place is the perfect will of God. But there are times in which we can feel... You know, there's this framework of thinking in our, in our modern day in which you have very low tolerance for people who are not like you or who have something to say to you that will change you. And that's why marriages have failed generally to a large extent because of the fact that our expectation is that the person that we marry will keep this high level of romance and sexual fulfillment and those are the basic two things that people want. That person is actually going to fulfill me. You're, we're looking to that person to fulfill ourselves, and it's all about us. But I'm always struck by Tim, what Tim Keller says, is marriage is a, is a training in which we live, we learn how to live, not for ourselves, we subjugate or submit our own desires for the other person. And we practice love. We practice love so that we come out of ourselves. Because unless we come out of ourselves and stop looking for the perfect fit or the perfect friends or the perfect wife or the perfect husband, we will always be spiritually immature, emotionally immature. Does that make sense? There's, marriage is a training ground for living not for yourself. And, and Tim Keller says, marriage is a, is, a, is a place in which it is not about fit at all. If you think fit, 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 fit all, you'll be totally unfit for marriage because of the fact that marriage has to do with the fact that God is wanting to change us. Yeah? I tell you happily that. 
because God has done something great for us. Amen. And so we have to get out from this idea that when, if we are in the perfect will of God, things are going to be actually fitty, perfect, exact fit, exact, exact um, bliss. But what God is wanting to do is different. Let's have a look at it. The psalmist is saying, Oh God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul's thirst for you, verse 1. And my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then verse 2 says, Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And because your loving kindness, uh, the word has said, the covenant love of God, the, the love by which God has covenanted himself unconditionally to us, is better than life. Because your loving kindness, your said, your covenant love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I lived, live. So, verse 2, there seems to be a shift. And, 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 and the psalmist, in all that weariness, in all that drought, kind of drought-ridden existence, he says, thus I have seen you, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And what the psalmist is speaking about is a certain kind of seeing. It's a certain kind of seeing. He's not seeing with his flesh. He's not seeing with his physical eyes, with his senses or his logical mind. But he's seeing because some other faculty in him has been opened up to be able to see something through the lens of the sanctuary, through the presence of God. And what God is saying is this, you can never be fully, fully fulfilled because of the fact that you are looking through the lens of your flesh, what your flesh wants, what your experience wants. If you dwell in your flesh, you will dwell in a false identity. And what the psalmist is prefiguring in the New Testament is the fact that when he sees God, he sees Him in the sanctuary, he sees Him through His Spirit, which is not your emotions, it's not your senses. It is that spiritual part, that infinite part of God that is so profound that you, it bypasses your feelings, it bypasses your mind, bypasses your intellect, and it goes straight to God. It speaks, it functions in the language of God, which you cannot understand, which you cannot identify with, which you do not fit. The image of God in us is not, is not sufficient for us to be able to understand the language of God and the, and the, and the power of God. But the, the, the the psalmist prefigures in the Old Testament something very profound. He says that, even so, I have seen you in the sanctuary or through the sanctuary, seeing your power and your glory. And when that happens, I'm satisfied. What he's saying is this, there is an existence, a lower existence, like a little cup that easily gets filled up. It's the cup of the flesh. It's the cup where we can be satisfied by things that are only satisfying the flesh. What he's saying is this, that it's a bigger cup. It's a bigger bowl. And you can live out of this bowl of God's love and God's reality or in, in which you will see things that are unseen and you will pull out from there miracles or you can live out of the little cup which has to do with the things that you want, you crave for, you desire. And that's why I believe that so much of today's picture about marriage is based upon romance and sexual fulfillment 
and self-actualization. And you're looking to the other person to do that for you. And as long as that person has stopped doing that, then you should not be married to that person anymore. And you can call lovelessness. You can call, call out lovelessness. And that's it. It's, it's, it's over. Because of the fact that the criterion in, the, in, in, in more modernly times has, has changed from a commitment by which we give love to the other person unconditionally. Because that's based upon God's steadfast, has said love, is uncovenantal, um, unconditional love towards us. So we become channels of God's love to the other person. The, the world cannot survive without a strong core of unconditional love. The, the, the world today is built upon a series of contracts and, co and, and, and covenants that are based upon, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you don't scratch my back, I, de I declare lovelessness. And because of that, that's enough. And because we are living in a psychological, psychologically based world, then the psychological um, 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 self-referencing is the criteria by which we see reality. Not biology, not nature, not facts, not God, not anything, but by our, but by our own particular sense, our own subjectivism. And that's the way in which what God wants to do is to actually bring us to a true objectivity by which we see through the lens of God. Now, when Christ came, He brought in the forgiveness of sin and the healing that can make us live again in our spirit. Because we are spirits that are embodied. We are actually spirits that are meant to communicate with God, hear from God, do the works of God. So that miracles become quite natural. We are naturally spiritual and spiritually natural. But we are living in a different realm, the realm of the small little cup. We live by little cup. And if your identity is based upon little cup, then your identity will be based upon your race, upon your ethnicity, upon your education, upon how you look, upon how good you are, and what your talents are. That's little cup. It's not nothing, but it's little cup. But if you live out of your spirit, your spirit knows none of that. Your spirit knows God. And your spirit finds yourself as more than what you are in the natural. And what God, is, the, the Holy, Holy Spirit is speaking through the psalmist is this. We can live through the sanctuary to see the power and the glory. Do you know that a, a, a very minuscule um, um, uh, proportion of nature, of, of matter, it can be, can be felt and experienced and detected. Most of it, the vast majority of matter, cannot be seen in antimatter. If it is true that most of what is, is real, real and actual cannot be seen, cannot be felt, perhaps cannot even be measured, then it's true that we need to be more objective than we are, rather than based on what we can subjectively um, um, detect or feel. And that's why little cup goes by feelings. And little cup makes up its own reality. But big cup has to do with the spirit that stands over and against our feelings and is better than our feelings and fulfills our feelings even more so that our feelings are, are brought in line with it and we are healed. And so the psalmist realizes, I'm in desolate place and I'm, in, I'm dry and my feelings tell me God is not there. My feelings tell me that God has, 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 has condemned me. My feelings tell me that God doesn't care for me. He's not present. And, he says, and then I have to worship God so much so that God will come. What nonsense is that? You mean God never came before you worship? 
You mean God was absent to you? You mean He's not omnipresent? That God has to somehow be validated because you feel it. Just because you feel the presence of God, that doesn't mean God is suddenly here. No, He was here before you felt it. Your, your, your feelings came out of little cup. But what God wants to do is to cause us to die to that so that we can live out of our new nature in Christ. That is why if your, 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 your main uh, purpose in life is to fulfill little cup's desires and little cup's identities, you will never be satisfied. So we want to live out of big cup, so, so to speak. And every time we begin to feel the desolation and the, the sense of, um, of uh, unfulfillment and, and the, the sense that we are far away from home, the Lord has home for you. And your home, my home is not Malaysia. My home is not my family. My home is not people who look like me with glasses and, and uh, Malaysian. My home is God. Because of that, I'm willing to give it up to come to a strange people who look very different from me. Because my identity doesn't lie in that. Or else I'll be constantly wanting to hanker after home. Be with people just like me. Amen? Ooh. No, we have to live out of big cup. And what God is going to do is to transform us so that we will be satisfied. So that we will be satisfied with Him, not because of the fact that we kind of like, oh well, between gritting our teeth that, okay, I'm going to give that up and didums to me. But because of the fact that God has more, my true self is in big cup. In fact, if my big cup is, is, is filled, there will be many things about little cup that I don't even need. Somebody was, uh, I was talking to someone yesterday and uh, he's not here, that's good. You don't know him actually. Um, and he was saying, I have needs. So he's having a difficulty and he says, I have sexual needs. You think God can satisfy that? And so his, his thinking was this, God cares for my sexual needs. Sex is a gift for me. And I can't get it from my wife. So because of that, maybe God's giving me a gift of other people. Because he, his, his, his thinking is this, I need this, and he's speaking out of little cup, right? I need this. And if that cannot be fulfilled, the, 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 the venue the arena of fulfillment has to be little cup. The fulfillment of that thing or not. I said, when, you know, when God comes to you, He fills you up with more. He fills up your big cup. So much so that there are more things in your life that satisfy you. And so much so that the need for that one thing begins to be overshadowed. It's still a gift. But you cannot live with it at the same time until the right time. Amen? So many times we think, we, we funnel God into this little cup thing and we say we'll never be happy until my identity, my, my aspirations in little cup are fulfilled. 
may I say that God wants to do is to actually take the small cup, not throw it away. Put it in the big cup. Fill up the big cup so that in, in, in as far as the big cup is filled, the small cup will be fulfilled as well. What God wants to do through the, through the, uh, through the psalm here is this. He says, I have, so I have seen you in the sanctuary. Show, change our, our, our faculty of discernment. You see, so that we don't have to just see by, based upon our sense, senses, our five senses, but he actually wants to do a work in which our five senses may for a while sometimes experience meanness, a lack of fulfillment, and he benights our sight. Boom, boom. I can't see anyone who I can identify with. I can't see anyone that I can relate to. I can't see anyone who's a comfort. I cannot see anyone who I can trust. Have you been in situations where there's nobody you can trust? You feel not safe at all. You're li living in an environment in which everybody feels unsafe. And you have not the, the, the luxury of relating to that person heart to heart. And you feel that as long as you don't have that heart-to-heart -heart relationship for a time, you are not in the will of God. No, I can tell you something. There are times in which what, what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of soul happens, in which he benights these things so that we don't live by little cup. We don't live by our senses so that the gifts of the Spirit don't arise out of our feelings, but they come out of the Spirit. Now, the language of the Spirit is not the language of feelings. It's not an aesthetic feeling. That's why, you know, some of you who, who know Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard speaks about the fact that there is this aesthete man, this aesthetic man, a person who lives by the aesthetics. And then there's another person who's a, who's a godly man who lives out of God. And he says that you have to be converted from the aesthetic man. That means the man or the person who lives by the, 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 the taste of the flesh, the taste of what's beautiful, into that which is divinely beautiful, that is of God, that's not broken. And what, what Kierkegaard says about this is that God is actually transforming us and there's something that is, there's a mystery about that. Let's talk about that mystery, okay, today. Because I believe God wants to bring us into that. Amen. And there's sometimes where what God will do is will, will, to be, will be to benight that part for a while in mid in mid season, in the meantime. Because what God is doing is this: He's gonna cause our discernment, our spirits, be able to see things that cannot be seen just to core by our feelings. Okay. Many people, Christians, feel that they are led by God by their feelings. And that is why people accuse charismatics of being subjective. Because in truth, sometimes as charismatics, we, live by, we go by our feelings. I had a strong feeling about this, that's why God wants you to marry me. Yeah. I had a strong feeling. <laughs> I don't know where those feelings come from, but there's a way in which we tend to think that in God, there's a straight line between our small cup and the fulfillment of those things. What God says is, He brings the cross and He says, now you have to die to this. Because if you, die, if you do not die to this, your small cup will be a, a, a tyrant. It will be an Ishmael 
that persecutes is Isaac, so to speak. But what God does is that he begins to say, now I'm going to bring you into a waiting period. We were singing about that today. That last song was my sermon right there. Our sermon, not my sermon. That last song spoke it all. Just like last week, Psalm 84 said it all. There's a way in which God wants to do, do a work in which He brings out this other part of us in which how we hear from God, how we sense things from God, how we move from God, how we move and live and have our being comes from a different place. All right? That different place can sometimes be conflated, can be mixed up with our soul, our mind, our emotions, our feelings and all that. And so because of that, we are on and off. We are, it's kind of random. It's like sometimes we're on, sometimes we're off. Because they two, they two have been confused and conflated. He has to separate these things out. So do you know what is flesh and what is spirit? What is little cup and what is big cup? And how do we know that we are developing in our senses, spiritual senses? I'll give you three practical areas. There is no cause and effect, causal way in which I press this button and then my spirit will start opening up. I'll press this button and my spirit will close up. No, it's just way in which God calls us some basic things is live in holiness. Because in holiness, what will happen is that you, will be, you and I will begin to experience a cleansing by which God causes us to live in accordance to what His desires are. Holiness has to do with being set apart for God. It's not just ethical. It's not just becoming pious. It has, me, it has to do with the fact that I belong to God and I don't belong to anybody else. I don't belong to myself. Holiness. There's a way in which um, holiness was the, 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 the catchword in the Hebrides revival because what happened was that when the Spirit of God came, the conviction of sin that multitudes, thousands of people, young people had was this, I'm not holy. Not holy. And that's how, that's how, be, how they, they were brought to the Lord. Not because that somebody preached a, a user-friendly message to something that is saying, God will give you what you want. They were convicted by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came upon them and made them feel what they would not normally feel. That's true revival. When true revival happens, it doesn't come because we have preached a really nice and, and, and sugary message and you say, all the dreams will come true. Whatever dream you want. As uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dream Code says, there's this song that says, any dream at all. No, not, not any dream at all. What God does is that He, he sets us up unto holiness. I found that when that, I was confronted with that, before that, I could never catch what God was saying. I couldn't catch, I couldn't understand why everybody else in my church was hearing from God and it was so accurate and so many, many miracles come out. For me, I would hear something and it would be totally off. Because you know why? I was doing it as an esthete, based upon the strength of my feelings, by the strength of, of, the, of the attractiveness of the idea. And what God was saying is this, I'm wanting to do a work in you, but I want you to set yourself apart from me. After I set myself apart for, for, for God, and it, 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 it meant paying a price, actually. I gave up 
um, my own dreams. Um, I, was, uh, I was given a scholarship to come and study in America for, for my PhD in uh, English literature. And I felt that at that time, the Lord was challenging me. He, says, he was saying, I want you to stay back, not go, and build the walls that have been broken down in my church. And I remember at that time, when God speaks, he, he, he makes us feel a certain joy about it. It's supernatural. It's like, it's the very thing I don't, don't want to do, and yet I feel a certain joy in doing that. I knew it was God. And so I gave that up. Immediately after that, for some reason, we would be in prayer, and I'd get the same impression as I usually get, the same kind of feeling, same kind of phenomenon in terms of getting an impression from God. But for some reason, it was correct. I can't tell you the way in which it came. It came exactly in the same, same way. But it was right. Does that make sense? It's a mystery. The second thing is to go by what the Word of God says and not by your own feelings or by, your own, by what other people say. You go by the Word of God. You be committed to that. Amen? By doing that, what happens is that those two things, they seem to be very, very basic, but they will clean up our spirit. It will clear the way for our spirit to be activated. Does that make sense? If you're committed to that, that will happen. And the third thing I want to say is this. You know, it says here in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God, I'll seek you early. And the third thing I would say is, is always do it early. If you feel led to, to, to pray, do it early. Don't say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich first, go to the fridge, then I'll do it. Oh, I feel inspired to pray. I feel so inspired that I think I'm going to go upstairs and put on my favorite sweater before I pray. So I feel all nice. Oh, I can feel, I feel I want to do my quiet time. Yes. Let me get coffee first. I'm not against all these things, but do it early. Amen? Holiness, okay? The Word of God, go by the Word of God, be it. Even though the Word of God doesn't make sense, let that be the arbiter. And third, do it early. Amen? There are many other things I could say, but I'm just going to share with you these because I feel that those may be important for us now. Okay? There was a tragic accident um, that took place on the East Coast from, in Martha's Vineyard in the late 90s where John Kennedy Jr. and his wife and one more person were flying a small plane uh, in, the, in the evening and were about to land. And the shocking news was that the plane crashed and all three died. So it was a terrible tragedy. But after the, that terrible thing happened, the National um, Transportation Safety Board did an investigation asking the question, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And what they came up was the fact that, and I'm quoting it, the pilots it was because of the pilot's failure to maintain, maintain control of the airplane 
during a descent over water at night, which was a result of spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation. Because the unusual horizon were covered over by haze. So John, John F. Kennedy Jr. was a competent pilot, but he not qualified to be able to, to, to operate the airplane just by um, instruments. He could only do it by his sight. And as a result of that, as he was flying in, he got disorientated because the horizon was obliterated, so he didn't know what was up and which was down. And so because of that, for a while, people believed he was flying upside down. He thought up was down and down was up. He was spatially disorientated. And the NTSB also said that there was a way in which he was, he was, he was flying for miles over water had no, that had no markers. There's no markers there. Um, the word is, um, it was a featureless water that he was flying over. I want to put it to you that there will come times where there is more and more of that going to be taking place. The horizon, the end in sight, will be obliterated. You can't see. Like the psalmist says, and we, nobody knows how long. The prophets are lost. We have no one who knows how long. It was in this time where Samuel, little Samuel came in, and, his, and, 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 and the writer of 1 Samuel says, and air before the lamp was completely um, snuffed out, the Lord spoke to Samuel. And God is actually bringing us into this moment in which you cannot go by what your eyes see. You cannot go by how you feel. There will be times in which God, after He has dealt with, He will work so that our feelings and our, our senses will be used, but not now yet. He has to bring it to death first so that he can use it, or else it becomes too independent. It, 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 it doesn't have a depth beyond little cup. And so what will sometimes happen is that God brings us through a certain benighted time. And it seems as if the only thing that you can actually um, go by is by the instrument. But it's completely... Counterintuitive. Uh, counter, counter I remember once in the early days of our, our, our plane, I was coming back and forth from Malaysia, and we were in Big Bear for a retreat, and I had to be back in LAX by a certain time. And so at the time, Cindy was working in JPL, and she was able to call a friend of hers um, to actually bring his, his little uh, plane to Big Bear, because there was a little airfield there, and we would take that plane to LAX, and he would arrive at LAX. So he gave me the opportunity to try piloting the flight, right? And the thing about piloting the flight is that you have to go by the instrument. You cannot go by what your eyes see. So there were times in which I was just looking out the screen, and I should have been looking at the instruments. And we were going like, so I understand that it's totally counterintuitive. We made it, though. We made it. Phew. Thank God. I'm here to tell the story. <laughs> but there's a way in which 
Doctors also use that, right? Doctors have to indwell the scope that's sometimes put into the intestines, the large intestines or whatever, or the, or the, or the, or the bladder. And you have to trust the scope. When I had surgery, they had what you call laparoscopic surgery that's done by robots. And so the doctor is actually, the surgeon is actually manipulating the robot. And he's not actually touching the tissue. And so he has to indwell the robot. That means what, what indwell means is that that becomes your eyes. You are in the robot. You cannot look from, a, from a, the other angle in which you look by your eyes because your eyes are not trained. They're not, they're not accurate enough. You have to indwell that. And for that to happen, you have to die to your physical sight, your physical senses, in order for you to be able to do that. And so the word indwell has to do with the fact that when we indwell the Holy Spirit, we indwell the Word of God. The Word of God is the lens through which we look at everything. And there are going to be times in which the Word of God will offend us. They will offend us in terms of our identity in little cups. Because it's not because He, he, he hates us, but because of the fact that He wants to bring us to big cup. There is a big cup in us. There is a big cup. There's a bigger reality than what you can feel than what you can, you can sense. And that needs to be something that dominates over that. that, when, that when that happens, our feelings begin to change. And what the, the psalmist says, then, my soul will be satisfied as with fatness. Amen? And I learned that um, when I began to, to examine these things um, in terms of the, the indwelling of an instrument. You know, there's a way in which our eyes, our physical eyes in small cups, are not equipped to see major things. I'm always thinking about um, those in the medical profession or those who are in surgery. You read your textbooks and the diagrams look very clear. There are clear lines in colors and all that, there are clear lines. And then you go and do a surgery and then you look at the mass of things. You don't know what is what. You're lost, completely lost. Same with uh, x-rays. I used to wonder how these people actually read x-rays. I look at the same x-ray and I see nothing. But those in the medical profession can see things. Oh, I can see this. this I can see this thing there. This is there. And this, this is not supposed to be there. This one's looking fine. I see nothing. Because my eyes have not been trained. How do my eyes get trained? How do I, my eyes make that jump between my own level of cognition and my own level of understanding of knowing to this other place where the knowing comes from a tacit knowledge, something that has been formed and, sh and, and shaped in into me. It's by repetition. You just keep doing it. You keep doing it. You just keep playing the same music, it's playing with the same chords until it gets into you and after a while, they begin to come alive. Praying in the Spirit is like that. Most of what we pray if you finish praying in English and you finish your understanding, pray all you want. Go, knock yourself out. Pray all the things you want that God already knows about anyway. And then you come to a place where you're silent. There's nothing. You don't know what to pray. There's nothing to pray. Nothing comes to you. But you stay in that place. Because in that place, you have come to the end of your prayers. Your prayer, you have come to the end of everything you know about prayer. And then you wait for God. And, then, and it is in this moment where just like holiness and the Bible and the, 
and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and seeking God early, what happens is that we just keep on that regimen. And as we do that, we stay connected with God. We stay committed to God. There are some things that are precious, that are important, that will take time. And you have no idea how the connection between what you're doing, waiting upon God, is relevant to what you are hoping will happen. You have no idea. There's no direct causal link between the two things. But you are going to wait upon the Lord. And what happens is that in the midst of this vast expanse of desolation, in the dark, vast expanse of desolation, even in prayer, suddenly something pops up. Boop. In 2007, we were going through a hard time and I was praying. And our girls were very young. And I didn't know what to do with them. So I just prayed and prayed and prayed. I had by that time realized that just because I don't hear anything, I don't have any revelation, doesn't mean God isn't speaking. I knew that. I just waited, just waited. And then one little um, uh, particle just fell into my spirit. Put them in swimming. Put them in swimming. And it occupied all their time. And they became really good swimmers. I don't know the link. I don't know what I did. I just did what God told me because the Word of God said so. And I set my heart for, apart for it. If you don't set your heart aside for that, you will be in and out on that. You will not have the perseverance to keep going. But if you made a covenant with God that you're going to seek Him early, that you're going to go by His Word, and you're going to be turning up for prayer, then you're going to find that because of that, because of that vow, even when you feel dry, you feel nothing, that will bring you there. How it brings you there, I don't know. You just need the space to be able to do that. Sometimes you need a lot of space. Amen? We had this problem with our um, washer-dryer as well. We have a good washer-dryer, a really good one. German brand, right? German brand? American brand? can't remember. It's a good one. But recently... It started not fulfilling its cycle, you know. We always come E22 or, or E26 and it'll stop halfway and then it'll be flooded. And we don't know what it is. We did all kinds of things. We looked at the instruction book. We did everything. We did everything. That we, we looked at all the YouTube videos on how to deal with this, this problem. But it was always flooded. Never finished its cycle. Dishwasher. What did I say? Okay, dishwasher. I'm talking about the dishwasher. Sorry. We don't have all these in Malaysia, so these are all kind of new to me. And I prayed. I just prayed. I prayed, and I knew that God was interested in every small part of us, including this. Praying, 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 trying different things, praying, praying, praying. And then one day in the, in the midst of all that, all I knew was that if I just keep faithful, there may not be any causal do this as the key, but if I just keep faithful, trusting God, something will happen. And true enough, you know what happened? One day I was doing my quiet time, and God said, just put half the amount of soap. And this was a few months ago. And since then, it's been working. <laughs> it's been working. Never skipped a beat. Never skipped a beat. I just put half the amount of soap, and it's just as clean. I don't know. I, I don't know the signs that's attached, attached to that, 
But that's, this is what uh, it, it, it yielded. So, so God is changing our senses. In prayer, what happens is this. You will feel perhaps nothing emotionally. But at some point, if you go long enough, a little pimple will appear in that whole, that whole expanse of time in your brain. little pimple. Boop. A little thought. A little scripture. A little revelation will just come. Boop. And because you're so used to seeing a, a clear road with nothing there, just desolate, that little pimple will seem really big because you've had so much of nothing. And that little pimple, and it'll be a, an erupting thought that gives hope, it gives light, and it just seems to be God speaking to you. By that time, God would have changed and transformed your senses so you become sensitive, so you can actually even experience that it feels real. When you touch that, your life will never be the same again because from that time onwards, you will always hear the voice of God that way. You'll never go by little cup. You'll never go by your feelings anymore because these things, and this is the kicker, will feel stronger than your feeling. They will feel more compelling than your feeling. They will feel more real than emotion. You'll never go by, oh, I feel this really, really strongly. And what do you mean by that? Sometimes maybe you mean emotions. But actually, your spirit will give you revelation that feels stronger than your emotions. Or else you'll always be confused. Amen? Okay, let's go to the last point. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Verse 5. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wing, I sing for joy. See the night's watches? These are the night times of our lives. And I want to end with this last verse. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. I do not like the word cling. I grew up in a tradition, spiritual tradition that does not cling. When the Catholic says, I cling to the cross, we charismatics said, we don't cling. We confess the word of God and we overcome the devil. I, did not, I never liked the word cling because my pastor always said, you never cling. Cling has the, has the, has the um, connotation of like being desperate and a bit depressed and like, haha, I'm holding on for dear life, right? But I would put it to you that that's a word in the Bible. The word cling. Because when we cling, it describes the desperation, the despair, the fear, the anxiety that we have all. And clinging is good because when we cling, there is an opposite counterpoint in which God, what does He do? Upholds us. Isn't that amazing? You may not feel it, but when you cling with all your heart, all your mind, all your desperation, and all your intestines, and all your sweat, there is a corresponding opposite action in which God is upholding you. And you may not feel the upholding, but He will be upholding you. And when you, He upholds you, you may not know which way to go, but He will take you there. 
And it's be only God who's actually going to do it. It's nothing about our intelligence or our, our own cleverness. It is God that's going to be doing it. And so I find that that's the key to the whole of Psalm 63, and that has to do with, in the meantime, clinging to God. I've had many occasions to cling before God. And I realize that it is not helpful for me sometimes to think, I'm just going to overcome it. I'm just going to overcome it. I will. But when I cling to Him, He upholds me. And at a certain point, I feel an overcoming spirit. Nobody told me how that overcoming spirit comes. I thought I had to take out a little cup and do my overcoming spirit thing and just confess it and tough it out. And actually, what God says, you just obey me with all the emotions and all the mess up that you have. Cling to me and I will uphold you. Prayer is the same thing. You may not feel like praying, but you cling. Clinging is what you do when you run out of ideas, don't you think? Clinging is what you do when you run out of, of, of hope. Clinging is what you do when your emotions are depleted. Clinging is what you do when against all hope, you're saying, God, you're my only hope. Amen? And it's in this context that um, I believe in the meantime, God is doing a work in us. Join us for pillars, because we will talk more about that. In the midst of this, God is preparing us and preparing our spirits so that our spirits will be more a dominant part of our lives rather than small cups. It's in this place that in the land, there are people who are crying out for you, crying out for God. And it's in this place that God is actually going to meet us. Amen? Let us pray.